verses 1 through 19 of Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders which he has wrought. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot what he had done and the miracles that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he wrought marvels in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He cleft rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? There are shorter ways to get from Egypt to Palestine than through the wilderness of Sinai. Mount Sinai is a good 200 miles out of the way, which is bad enough if you're driving a car, but if you're walking and there's no water and no shade, it tests your patience very much. You would think that if God could divide the Red Sea, he would know the shortest and simplest route from Egypt to Canaan. You would think that if he could do such a great thing as that, he would know the most direct and painless route to Palestine, to the Promised Land. Surely he could have given the law at Kadesh Barnea or at Hebron or at the Jordan River, some place a little more on the way. Oh, how weary God must become of our questioning his itinerary for our lives. How often we think we know better how to get from here to there than God does. We're so much more prone to grumble to the conductor when the train starts to turn south than we are to sit quietly and wait for the lessons that the Lord has to teach. He's a very strange guy. We never quite know what's coming next when God has made our itinerary. God would never make it in the travel industry because he's always leading his best clients 
into the wilderness. He even led his own son into the wilderness first, 40 days and 40 nights. And so it's clear that it's not because he has something against us that he leads us into the wilderness. He didn't have anything against Jesus. There must be something good for us in it. In fact, he must not think there's any hurry at all for us to get up to Canaan and glut ourselves on milk and honey. He tells us that the prosperity of the promised land is so dangerous to our souls that the recollection, only the recollection of some terrible weakness and some awesome divine wonder can divert the river of self-sufficiency and pride in our hearts from flooding our lives and drowning our faith. This is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to 18. Moses gives this word to the people at the Jordan River. They've just spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering and now are ready to go over. And this is what God tells them through Moses. Take heed lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I command you this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good. In the end, beware, lest you say in your heart, my might and my strength and my hand have gotten me this well. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers. Now, there's the philosophy of our travel agent. In a nutshell, these trips to the wilderness, they are not detours at all. No more than a trip to the doctor is a detour for a smallpox vaccination on the way to healthy adulthood. He led them into the wilderness, it, sees, it says, to humble them, to test them, to do them good in the end. What good? The houses, the goodly houses of the promised land, the multiplied flocks and herds and gold and silver? No. You don't need 40 years wandering in the wilderness to teach you how to get wealth. That wasn't the purpose. Rather, the good that he aimed to do for the people of Israel through the wilderness testing 
was to make them intensely and deeply and lastingly conscious that they are totally dependent on him for everything. He wanted to do some wonders for them in the wilderness when they were totally helpless so that they would know that no reasonable person could ever say, by my power and my strength and my hand, I have gotten me this well. The real testing of life is in the promised land more than in the wilderness. The wilderness is just God's prep school for the tough curriculum of Canaan. The wilderness is the boot camp. The battle for the heart is going to be fought in Canaan when the prosperity comes. There are more subtle spiritual scorpions and serpents in the goodly houses and the flocks and the fields and the herds and the gold and the silver of the promised land than there are under all the rocks of the wilderness. And none of us is so clever that we can avoid their bite. None of us is so immune to their sting that we can ignore God's itinerary and bypass the wilderness. The wilderness is God's inoculation against the infection of the promised land and its prosperity. You can count on it, child of God. If you haven't been there yet, you will be there soon. Know then, Deuteronomy says, in your heart that as a man disciplines his the Lord your God disciplines you. For the moment, all discipline seems painful instead of pleasant. But later, it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, trained by it. The wilderness is never easy. It is never easy. But it is good for us if we will be trained by it. And those who are best trained are most happy, most free, most thankful, no matter where their journey leads. Now, the history of Israel that we're tracing out in this series of messages that extends from the exodus to the entrance into the promised land can be summed up very briefly like this. After the exodus, it takes about three months to get to Mount Sinai. And those three months are described for us in Exodus chapter 14 through 18. Then in chapter 19, they arrive at the wilderness of Sinai. And all the way from Exodus 19 through the book of Leviticus into Numbers up to chapter 10, they're there and camped at Sinai. All of that part of the Bible deals with what they experience at Sinai. The giving of the law, the building of the tabernacle, the preparation of the priestly service. Then in Numbers chapter 10, they finally break camp. It's been about two years now, two years and two months, since they have left Egypt. 
and they head north to the promised land, just a few weeks away. You can imagine the excitement. And they stop at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran, just south of the promised land, and they send 12 spies into the land to search it out, bring back a report. What is it like? They return after 40 days. There's a minority and a majority report. Caleb and Joshua bring this report. Let us go up at once to occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. The other ten spies, the majority report, which is going to rule, bring an amazing argument against that suggestion. It's an amazing argument because those spies walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They walked in the wilderness two and a half years with manna laid before them, miraculous quail brought to them, water flowing out of split open rocks. And this is what they say. We are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. You picture now Caleb and Joshua. They look at each other. Then they look at Moses. Their mouths fall open and their voices rise to a crescendo. So what? What is what is the relative strength between them and us have to do with whether we should go in? It's just utterly frustrating. People who trust in God are always baffled by the practical atheism of nominal believers. If God said, go up, it doesn't matter that we look like grasshoppers and they look like giants. You go up and you win. But two and a half years in the wilderness, with the wonders of God... And the weakness of man wasn't enough to teach them the lesson. The people were not ready. They did not have faith and they rebelled against Moses. And this is what the Lord says to Moses in Numbers 14:11. How long will this people despise me? And how long... Will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs which I have wrought among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. Now, Moses is the most amazing leader in the world. You know what most leaders would say? Amen. Let's start over with a new church. Not Moses. Moses had so much patience. So much love for this people, he fell on his face. And again, after many times, this is what he said. Lord, don't disinherit your people. Forgive your people. And he gave God two reasons. He always argues with God. Reason number one. If you destroy this people in the wilderness, God, the Egyptians are going to say you couldn't bring them in and your name will be laughed to scorn. That's a strong argument with God. He loves his name. And the second argument came from his revelation on Sinai. Remember, Lord, what you said about yourself in Exodus 34. 
I am a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, showing mercy unto thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God, that's the way you are. Relent. God relented. Prayer is powerful when you pray like that. Appealing to God's name and the revelation of his glory and his character. So he relented and listened to what he said. You might think it's only a partial relenting, and it is. I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the proof these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, none of them shall see the land which I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and head for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Two and a half years wandering in the wilderness wasn't enough. Let's try 40. It's not hard, is it, to see the lesson of God in the wilderness experience of Israel? God said, even though they saw my glory in the Red Sea and in the wonders in the wilderness, even yet they put me to the test again and again by their grumbling and they did not hearken to me, and they did not rest in my power. Now, the implication is clear. The purpose of the exodus and the purpose of the wilderness wandering is to humble us before God so that we know our need, and then to show us great wonders so that we learn to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own insight or power. The curriculum of the wilderness is designed to lay bare the helplessness of human beings. The curriculum in the wilderness is designed to show that Albert Ellis and his rational emotive therapy, which says that trust in God is a babyish thing, is not so rational after all but that, in fact, in the wilderness, human beings really are like helpless babies. And unless we turn and become like children, we shall all likewise perish. But that's just Wilderness 101. That's the basic course. There's an advanced seminar that's coming. That course is called Deflating the Human Ego, Wilderness 101. There's an advanced seminar now that's entitled, Can God Spread a Table in the Wilderness? Or, How to Spread a Table in the Wilderness. Now, this second course is a snap if you're ready for it. Very, very simple. But if you're not ready for it, it's very humiliating. It's taught in two halves, two semesters. 
The one is on the trip from Egypt to Sinai, and the other is on the trip from Sinai to the Promised Land. The first half of the course is taught in uh, chapter 16 of Exodus. The lesson from 101 has been learned well. They know that they're helpless. They say, would that we had died in the, in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they've got lesson number one. They're going to die without help. Now for the advanced lesson. God says, Behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. At twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew round about the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as hoarfrost on the ground. Very short course. Very simple lesson. God can spread a table in the wilderness. That's the lesson. Very, very simple. And therefore, second half of the lesson... Trust him, obey him, rejoice in him, even in the wilderness, because he has your good at heart and he can take care of you even now. But Israel was not a good class. They did not learn the lesson in the first half of the seminar. So there was a Christmas break and they spent two years at Sinai, a lot of celebration, a lot of gifts, the gift of the law. And they break out then through the wilderness again for the promised land. And here comes the second half of the course. The people grumbled, cried out for meat. Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. And they lost all gratitude, began to grumble and murmur. And in Numbers eleven six they say... Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the flesh that we ate in Egypt for nothing, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. That attitude makes the teacher very angry at his class. And he says, here's the second and very humiliating half of the course. The Lord will give you meat. And you shall eat. You shall not eat one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days. You shall eat a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come forth out of Egypt? It's a terrible and foolish thing to say to a teacher, I would have been better off if I'd have never signed up for this course. I would have been better off, God, if I'd never started a life with you. Only very short-sighted and stubborn students want to drop out 
of the advanced seminar of God's wilderness prep school. It's not easy, but nothing on earth that's worthwhile is easy. It is absolutely essential, however, if we're going to graduate into the promised land. Now, the explicit purpose that God had in leading his people through the wilderness and in doing wonders for them is given in a text we've already read, Deuteronomy 8.16, which says, to humble you and to test you, to do you good in the end. In the wilderness, we are all stripped of all the devices by which we elude or delude ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient. The test, the test then, is to see whether or not we will be thankful for the provisions provided and trust the Lord to bring us through. And the good, the good that will come to us, that's the solid assurance that every giant is going to tumble before us little grasshoppers as we march straight for the promised land on the road to obedience. The road of obedience. God did spread a table in the wilderness, even for a stiff-necked and rebellious people like Israel. How much more, then, will he spread a table for us in our wilderness, we who trust him and believe in his saving power? Trust the Lord and do good, and you will dwell in the land and enjoy security. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your vindication as the light and your right as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him.